Lord, that's all that we need. Acts chapter 2, this has been our platform scripture in verse 42, says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I've got a little bit of echo up here, Brother Smoke. I'm not sure if you can do anything about that, but one of me is more than enough. Uh, but, uh, so that they continued steadfastly. That's what, that's what we're about this morning. We want to continue steadfastly. We want to be able to claim to have an apostolic identity. In previous lessons, we've established that if we're going to make that claim, we must have a connection with the apostles. We must have a connection, even though there is a, a, a gap in time of, of a couple of thousand years, we still have to have enough factors in common, significant enough factors that we can make those claims. And in the beginning of this series, we, we established that there were three areas that we needed to consider when testing our claim to having an apostolic identity. We talked about apostolic doctrine, or the beliefs and teachings of the apostles. We talked about having an apostolic experience, or that, that those doctrines and teaching must be revealed in, in who we are and what happens to us. If we're going to teach it, that we must experience it. Amen. And then we talked about the need for an apostolic lifestyle that as they lived out the commandments and the principles of Scripture and applied them to their time and culture, so must we. Amen. So just to recap, because it's been a couple of weeks, to recap what we've covered so far, when we talked about apostolic doctrine, we established who Jesus is, that He is God manifest in the flesh, the one true and living God. We talked about what it means to be born again, or to be saved, what Jesus said, if you're not born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. They taught that the Holy Ghost must be active in us and producing change and producing fruit and that the gifts of the Spirit should be in operation in the church. The apostles believed in sacrificial giving and they believed in prayer, in the power of prayer. Amen. Doctrine is crucially important in defining what we believe and being the foundation upon which our church is built. I don't know what you just did then, bro, but you need to undo it. I'm loud up here now. Sorry, I'm being difficult for the sound, man. We also considered that a genuine apostolic experience included the new birth of water and spirit, that we would be a witness, both with our speech and with our actions or our lives, that we would see the demonstration of God's power. An apostolic experience includes unity in the church of God. It includes a church that prays. It also, on the less uh, palatable side, includes a willingness to endure persecution and a willingness to be faithful when things are going wrong inside and outside of the church and to hold fast to truth when others compromise. That's the apostolic experience. And so today we want to touch on that third aspect and that is what it means to live an apostolic lifestyle. Bless the Lord. At first, when we're talking about making a connection between today and the first century church, to suggest that we should endeavor to live a lifestyle as they live seems somewhat unrealistic. We live in a very different time. We live in a very different era. We, 2,000 years removed in a completely different part of the world, we have the benefits of the Industrial Revolution. Some might say we have the negative sides of that as well. We have the advancements of modern technology. Our society, at least in our first impression, is very, very different from the first century. And in a lot of those things, I'm glad for. Glad for air conditioning, glad for cars, glad for some of the conveniences that we have. And so at first glance, 
we have so very little in common with them. So how could we say we need to live an apostolic lifestyle as they did? Does that mean we have to be like the Apostle Paul and walk across the countryside? Or ride on the back of a donkey? I don't know too many donkeys that would volunteer to carry me on a mission trip. But obviously we're not talking about that literal comparison. But you see, when you look a little deeper and you go beyond the language difference, push aside the visible components, you're going to find that we have more in common with the first century world than we first think we do. The lifestyle of the apostolic church in the first century was built upon the doctrine and experience of the believers, just as ours needs to be. If we do not have these things in place, if we do not already have established the apostolic doctrine and the experience, then our lifestyle is not really relevant to what we're talking about. Because without those things, first, how we live is not really going to have any impact. But we need to be born again. Sorry, we need, in the natural, you have to be born before you can live. And in the spiritual, you have to be born again before you can live spiritually. So before we talk about a lifestyle, we have to first establish that we've been born. That's why Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And Scripture makes it very clear that when you are born again, that you become a new creature. And that the old creature or the former sinful life has passed away and that all things are become new. It gives us understanding that the new life, and I'm not using a lot of scripture because I could take all day, but the new life that we have now is not to be the same as the old life we had before. Otherwise, why have a new life? If he came to give us life and life more abundantly, what he gave us was exactly what we already had, then why would you want to change it in the first place? be like trading in a car that was full of engine problems for another car that was full of engine problems. It might be a different brand, but it's got all the same issues. Bless the Lord. And so we have to understand that because we have been saved from our sins, that our new life needs to be lived or our lifestyle needs to happen in a way that both prevents us from going back to what we were saved from and strengthens our new relationship with God. In fact, if you'll turn with me to 2 Peter, just quickly, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. The Apostle Peter warns us about the, the risk, uh, of the, the danger of going back to that old life. He's, when we read this, don't, don't read it from the perspective of when you make an error. We all make mistakes. We're human beings. But he's talking about reverting to a former life. And he says this in verse 20, For if after they, you can insert the word I there instead of they to make it personal, if after I have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I am again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse for me than the beginning. For it had been better for me not to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto me. But it has happened unto me, this is what would happen, according to the true proverb that the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's a graphic picture because it's a graphic message. If we revert back to the former lifestyle and the former sin, it's like we've taken something that's been washed and made clean and holy, and we make it filthy again. And the way to present, prevent that from happening is to live in a way that suits God, that pleases God, that honors and obeys God, and preserves us from going back to those things. 
And the first century church had to deal with these things just as much as we do today. It is an illusion to think otherwise. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, please, and verse 14. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. There's a lot in the epistles to the Corinthians about godly lifestyle because the Corinthian church had its fair share of issues and the apostle Paul wrote and gave them a lot of instruction regarding those issues. And in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord or a binding agreement has Christ with Belial or with the devil? And what part has he that believeth with an infidel or an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, or because of this, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And the first verse of the following chapter says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in this passage, that there are some things that simply do not belong together. They're not compatible with one another. Believers and unbelievers, that doesn't mean you can't eat with them or go to work with them. It's talking about lifestyles, the way that we go about our conduct and our, and our behaviors. Righteousness with unrighteousness. Light with darkness. The temple of God with idols. These things are ex exclusive from each other. They're not compatible. They don't go together. And he's letting us know that in exactly the same way as believers, we are to be separated from things that are unclean. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a whole list of physical things that were unclean. Certain animals they weren't to touch or eat. Certain situations they weren't to be involved in. They weren't to touch dead bodies. They there was a whole list of stuff that was actions of separation. But the Apostle Paul wrote to us and talked about cleansing ourselves from filthiness of flesh and spirit. So we, there is action involved, but there is also thought and intent of the heart. The two cannot be separated because one produces the other. And he said that because of the promises of God, verse 1 of chapter 7, because we have these promises, because God said that He desires to be in a relationship with us as a heavenly Father and we would be His children and there would be that closeness and everything positive about a father that can be in a life. Man, earthly fathers have shortcomings and failings. But a heavenly father, when you enter into a relationship with a heavenly father, everything about him is good. He provides, he protects, he guides, he directs, he instructs, he chastises where necessary. But he wants us to be in a close relationship with him. And he said, because of that promise, he said, keep cleansing ourselves, keep putting aside things that don't please God, that don't honor God, that are contrary to the word of God, that you might maintain and even grow in a closer and more intimate relationship with your Heavenly Father. And it's from this concept that we, we often use the word separation when we talk about godly living. And separation is a very strong biblical principle. The nation of Israel was to be separate from the nations around about them. 
Their, the way they lived, their identity, everything was to be different. Not in the sense of just being different so they could be weird. You know, that's those weird Israelites over there. But different in the sense that they were devoted and dedicated unto God. And God was using those people to reveal himself. And ultimately to reveal himself to the world. And so because of that, Paul says we need to continue to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. That's not a very pleasant word, filthiness. It doesn't say subtle blemish. It says filthiness. Our natural carnal man is a filthy thing. Let's not kid ourselves. We're, we're not good people that need a slight adjustment. We're broken, corrupt sinners that need to be saved from our sin. Jesus didn't come to bring a self-help program. He came to die and to pay the penalty for sin. Because we desperately needed that and could not save ourselves. Amen. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, Peter writes and says, But as he which has called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The word conversation, as most of you understand, in the King James is not just talking about speech, although it includes speech. It's talking about our lifestyle, our manner of conduct and how we live. And so the God that has called us to himself is holy. And when we think about God being holy, we need to understand that while we are required to be holy, we are not God. He's holy in that he is pure. There is no sin, there is no corruption, there's no wickedness, there's nothing found in him that even is close to anything that is wrong. He is perfect. In fact, it's very difficult for us to have the words to really describe and quantify what God's holiness is. And when it says to us to be holy in all manner of lifestyle, we are not trying to be God, but we are trying to separate ourselves from things that don't please God, that we might draw closer to God. See, sometimes people think that godly living is all about what you cannot do. But godly living is about releasing things that don't please God and drawing nearer to God. You can write yourself a list of things you shouldn't do that's pages and pages long and still not be close to God. Because they're just actions of, you know, you don't believe in anything anymore except fresh air and bottled water. That, that doesn't make you any closer to God. It's as you let go of one, you take hold of another. Because often as God deals with us, it is what we have over here that hinders us from holding on to over here. And so as you release things or separate things out of your lives, you do so for a purpose. It's not just to say, I don't want that. It's, I don't want that because it doesn't please God and I want to draw nearer to God. We'll get to that a little bit more as we go along. But the, the idea of separation as a lifestyle for Christians, again... We're not talking about literal physical separation. We don't build communes. We haven't got special farms hidden up in the mountain where all the new converts go and they have to stay there for 10 years and not allowed out. That's not what separation is talking about. It's about having barriers and boundaries in our lives. Or one of the words that's often used nowadays is the word guardrails, and I think that's not a bad word. They're put there to protect us from consequences. Now, who's ever driven over mountains or hills or windy roads? Some of us have. I have. A few years ago, I drove through the snowy mountains in Canberra up the, I think it's called the Alpine Way that goes up Kosciuszko and around the side and comes down the other side. Now, I've never hit a guardrail, I'm quite proud to say. I've driven on a lot of windy roads, but I've never hit a guardrail once. But I'm still really glad that they were there. So coming down that mountain, 
and that road takes a sharp turn. Even though I didn't crash into the guardrail, there was something about the presence of the guardrail that made me feel a little bit more secure. And, it, you know, we are responsible for what happens, but the thing is, guardrails are not there because you cannot drive. If, if you have to have guardrails to stay on the road, you probably shouldn't be driving. If you drive by sliding along the guardrails everywhere you go, they should probably take your license off you. But guardrails are there for the unexpected, for an accident, for a loss of control. You know, if I had been coming down that mountain and there had been water or ice on the road that I didn't see, I could have lost control of the vehicle. The guardrail might have saved my life. They're there for when a weary driver closes their eyes for just a little bit too long. And if you've ever worked shift work or long hours, you know what it's like to be weary when you're driving home from work. I used to drive home from the restaurant near the city after a long day in winter with the windows down to keep me awake while I was driving. By the time I got home, the side of my head was frozen from the wind on the freeway at 100 kilometers an hour, but it kept me alive. I figured that was more important than being warm. And you know how, how you can get when you're weary. Spiritual guardrails serve exactly the same purpose. We ought to take great care with our walk with God just like we do when we drive. We ought to take great care. We ought to be very careful how we navigate and how we direct ourselves. You are responsible for your own actions. We all are. But at the same time, there will be things that happen that we're not prepared for. There are circumstances that will spring up that we didn't see coming. There will be situations where we feel that we do not have control. And there will be things, times in our walk with God when we will grow weary. And we can get a little bit drowsy at the wheel. And that's why we need guardrails. That's why we need things in our lives to protect us. Because at the end of the day, a guardrail might save your life naturally, but it might save your soul spiritually. You cannot put a guardrail in place as you slide off the edge of a mountain. It's too late. Even if you have one in the back of the car as the car careers toward the cliff, you can't whip that thing out and put it into place. It's too late. The guardrail has to exist before the crisis happens. The guardrails have to be established before you find yourself in a place of weakness, before you find yourself in a place where you're a little bit drowsy or where something happens that you weren't ready for. If the guardrail is established, it will save your soul. And yet we live in a society where people climb guardrails, go to the other side thinking, I'm going to be okay. I was in the Twelve Apostles once with a, a friend who shall remain nameless. Some of you already know who I'm talking about. But this man had wanted to see the Twelve Apostles all his life. And when you go out there, one of those rock structures is still connected to the mainland and you can walk out and stand on it. And understandably, there are guardrails all around because those things have a straight drop on each side of, I don't know, five, six, seven stories. And you won't bounce very well. But my friend climbed the guardrail because he wanted to have a bit, bit better experience and went out a bit further and sat on the edge. And I said, bro, if you fall, you're on your own. I'm not coming after you. I'm not crossing this rail. There's a reason that it's here. Fortunately, he's still alive today. But too many people do that with their relationships with God. There are things put there to protect them, but they are confident enough in themselves that they climb the guardrail and walk perilously near the edge. 
Does everybody fall off? No. But how many have to fall off before we recognize the guardrail? Bless the Lord. A guardrail can save your soul. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. We're talking about an apostolic lifestyle. And I'm not going to get into specifics today in case you're worried. We may end up doing a follow-up lesson that includes some of that. So maybe you should worry. First John chapter 2, very well-known passage, verses 15 and 16. says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The, the love of the world and the love of the Father are, are not compatible. You cannot have both. You have one or you have the other. I want to read that to you from a modern translation. The New Living Translation says it like this, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. These three areas represent the world that we should be separated from. First of all, that lust of the flesh, the craving or desire for physical pleasure. The lust of the eyes, the craving or desire for what we see, material gain, increase. And the pride of life or self-exaltation and importance. A trust in oneself for all things or also the worship of things other than God. Now, if you go across to Galatians chapter 5, reading a little bit of scripture, Galatians 5 and 19, the Apostle Paul gives us a list of things that are not pleasing to God. Galatians 5 and 19, he says this, now the works of the flesh, so in other words, the things that come out of our sinful carnal nature. Now, when you read this list, it does not mean that when you were a sinner that you did everything on that list. But it means that the capacity for all of those things is resonant within us. And if you don't believe that, forgive me, but you're, con you're kidding yourself. The capacity for sin and all of its fullness resides in every single one of us. If you don't think that's true, have a look at society when, when there is chaos and when natural disasters come through and martial law comes into play and the behavior of people when legal boundaries are taken out of place, how they begin to kill and rape and loot and destroy. Why? Because somebody moved the boundaries. There's a good reason that even our society recognizes the need for boundaries. But this is what it says, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or they're revealed. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past. So if you hear me preach something more than once, the Apostle Paul did it, so I'm in good company. That they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God doesn't say it will become difficult. It says they shall not. It's a statement. 
Paul gives us this list, and it's not exhaustive, or in other words, it doesn't include everything, which is why he used an expression, and such like. Because human nature is, is twisted enough that it, if it's doing something that is ungodly, but it cannot find it on the list, it will excuse itself. That's why Paul said, and such like. Because people are always coming up with creative new ways to sin. He said, he gave us this list of things that are produced by a sinful carnal nature, the things that were a part of the old man, the old lifestyle. Now, there's a lot of words in the King James there that we don't use so much today, so I'm going to read the same verses again from the New Living Translation. It says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, this is verse 19, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension and division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's just for a moment try to put a bit of a connection between Paul's list in Galatians and the three categories that John gives us in 1 John. The lust of the flesh. From Paul's list, we can include sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful pleasures. Our society is full of these things. Full of them. It's not a slight problem. We are in such a time of moral depravity that the destruction of that, if the Lord doesn't come back in the generations to come, we will see the harvest from that behavior. We will see what happens in the world that we live in. The Apostle Paul had to face the same things in the first century. Don't think that he didn't. Paul went to Ephesus. Ephesus was a place where the goddess Diana was worshipped. And when she was worshipped as a part of the worship of that false goddess, there was all manner of perverse sexual rituals. You can study that out for yourself. You can look it up on the internet. But I'm not going to go into the graphic details. But there was all manner of wicked and perverse sexual behavior that was a part of how she was worshipped. And we might say, well, you know, that was just a small group of really crazy people. No, no, the whole area of Ephesus was given over to the worship of Diana, not the former British princess, but Diana of the Ephesians. The goddess of fertility was one of the things that she was the goddess of. And if you've ever seen statues of how that image used to live, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But it was not something that Paul dealt with it just like we did. When he got to Ephesus, it confronted him everywhere that he went. And as he preached the gospel to them, and as he preached righteousness to them, they reacted to him just the way society reacts today. They got angry. They grabbed him, they took him, they tried to have him tried, they wanted to have him beaten, they wanted to do all sorts of wicked things. And in fact, when you read Acts chapter 19, at one point there was this mob of people that chanted, great is Diana of the Ephesians, for two solid hours. They were whipped into a frenzy of idol worship. And if you don't think that's happening today, go down to the city when they're parading and protesting and carrying flags and all those things, trying to get equal rights for all manner of sexual perversion. It happens today just like it did in the first century church. But Paul preached righteousness to them. 
Paul reached into that community. He preached the gospel. People responded, were saved from their sins. And then he began to teach them how to live for God. You read the epistle to the Ephesians. There's, there's lots of examples, but in Ephesians 5 and 3, he said that fornication and uncleanness, he said it shouldn't be named once amongst the saints. He was preaching that in a society that was filled with immorality. Wall to wall, filled with wickedness. And yet he said, this is the way that you live if you're going to live for God. So we cannot say that we have to be culturally relevant and change our standards and change the things that we preach and teach to suit the society that we live in. Paul didn't, and God help us, neither should we. Amen. Today, we don't have temples with great stone pillars and literal stone idols, but instead we have the movie stars, the musicians, the celebrities that preach their gospel of immorality and wickedness, particularly targeting our young people. They don't do it from supposed temples, but many, many people in our society willingly watch, listen, and download the false doctrines that come out of these prophets' mouths. You think that's too strong? Read some of the lyrics. Look at some of the lifestyles. See what that does when it gets into people's ears and their minds and their hearts and their souls. See how people's attitudes towards sin become more tolerant and more accepting. It's exactly the same, if not worse, than it was then. That's why I encourage your parents from time to time to know what your children are into, to know what they listen to, to know what they want. You know, you'll never, you'll never prevent everything, but you can do everything that you can to protect and to preserve them. That's why it bothers me when supposedly Christian young people quote lyrics from songs that are full of immorality and ungodliness and wickedness. There's something wrong there. It shouldn't be like that. It's not as different today as it was back then. Paul dealt with it, and we have to deal with it. That's why, as your pastor, I try to teach you to put guardrails in your lives and in your family's lives because we are in a society that is slipping at a terrible rate and losing control or hold of anything moral and upright and just. You see, look, right now the hot-button issue issue in our society is same-sex marriage. It's something that is gaining a lot of coverage in the media. It's something that is causing a lot of strong feeling. There's a lot of vicious communication that takes place in frontline media, in social media, and on the streets of our city. There are Christians that get involved in that debate and don't behave like Christians. But the thing is, this is not just uh, something that we didn't just wake up one morning and have this problem. This is the product of a slide. This is not, we didn't just wake up one day and suddenly decide, well, let's be a good time to legalize same-sex marriage. If you look back in only the last century, You look at such things as the breakdown of the family unit, of how marriages are falling apart, of how the laws have been changed so that you can get in and out of a marriage very, very easily. You look at how fornication has gone from being something that was talked about and snickered about behind closed doors to being an acceptable form of entertainment and activity on a weekend. This is, this, what we're dealing with today is not just something that's just sprung up. It is the product of a moral degeneration. 
in the Western world. We have released things that we would have never thought that we would release, and we are paying the price. If you were able to get in a time machine, and I'm kind of glad they don't have them, but if you were able to go back in our society 50 years ago and tell the people on the main street of this city that there is coming a day when people will want homosexuality accepted and treated as exactly the same as, as, same as heterosexual marriage, they would have said, you were nuts. They would have said, no, nah, it'll never happen. People will never accept that. People don't agree with that. They don't think it's right. They think it's wrong. But look where we are. Makes me wonder where we'll be in 50 years. Things that right now you think that will ne never say never. Don't underestimate the capacity of sin and its ability to destroy a society. That's the world that we're living in. This is not just a, something that's just sprung up. This is the product of a, of a, of a decline. We're on a slippery slope, and there will be very little that is illegal soon. And when we take a stand for truth, we'll possibly be treated just like the Apostle Paul was in Acts chapter 19. I do not believe we should be people that, that spew hate. I do not believe that we should be people that condemn and ridicule and, and, and you know, all sorts of vile things come out of our mouths, but we have to take a stand for truth. We should treat everybody exactly the same. I've worked in several jobs with people that were homosexual. I treated them just like everybody else I worked with. It's just another work colleague. Same respect, same interaction, same conduct. There's a big difference between how you treat somebody and condoning what they do. And our society is confusing the two. They want us to, they consider tolerance to be acceptance. But tolerance is that you treat them with respect, but you don't agree. Bless the Lord. That's the society that we're living in. And it's not going to be a popular message. And we're living in an hour when churches more and more are coming on board with that thinking. Bless the Lord. I think that's enough about the lust of the flesh. We could preach about that for a while, but I think we're aware of our society. We need, you know, we need... Let me say one more thing about it. We need to educate our children. Parents, you need to educate your children about what is right, about what is wrong, what is healthy, what is godly, what is normal. You cannot leave it and think, well, when they're 17 and 18 and starting to be interested in girls or boys, whatever, then I'll deal with it. No, no, you have to deal with it when they're very young because society is dealing with it when they're very young. They're teaching it in their schools. And if they do not know what is right, then when, the, when they are taught, they'll have nowhere as a reference point. My kids have been taught these things at high school, but they knew what was right and wrong before they went to that class. I haven't taught them to stand on a desk and to rail against the teacher, and they're probably both really glad about that. But they had a foundation of truth first, of what is right and what is wrong. Bless the Lord. Let's, let's talk about the lust of the eyes. Again, our present-day society. We've never lived in a time, I don't believe, where material pleasure has been so much a part of who our world is and our identities. You know, when I was a kid, they used to use an expression, keeping up with the Joneses. Anybody, you older folk, familiar with that expression? Yep. And what that basically meant was, like, for example, if you live next door to somebody and they upgraded their house, you upgraded your house. They got a better car, you got a better car. You know, whatever. They put in a swimming pool, you put it, because you had to keep up with somebody. We're not trying to keep up with people anymore. 
We want to overtake them, buy them out and shut them down. That's the world we're living in. It's, it's not about comparison. Greed, greed is like ne it never has been in our society before. You can buy anything, anywhere. You don't actually have to have money. The, the credit card debt, and I'm not teaching on finance today, but even society will tell you that the credit card debt that we have right now is greater than it has ever been in history. And it's at a point where people are very close to getting out of control, and many people already have. And when you look around at our society and everything that we have, you think, why? Because you have to have it now. I cannot live without that big plasma screen. If our first house doesn't have eight bathrooms and three theater rooms and four garages, we won't be able to survive. But that's the kind of thinking that we have. And people, young people, young couples are getting into debt that they're going to carry like a ball and chain around their necks for the rest of their lives that will damage their walk with God. It's not just about bricks and cars and all that stuff. It's about what you want most in life. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5, and he said that there are some people that suppose that gain is godliness. That's the New Testament way of describing prosperity preachers. And Paul said to Timothy, withdraw yourself from them. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He said, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Now, I'm not saying you just have to have clothes and food and sleep in the park. I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying. He was talking about being content with the basic needs of life. You've got families, you've got to put them in a house. I understand that. But he said, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There's a direct connection the doctors can't prove it. Science can't prove it, but there is a direct connection between your heart and your wallet. It's proven by behavior. What you invest in is where your heart is at. Now, I, I mentioned this just recently, but there's nothing wrong with having a nice house and having a good job if God blesses you all those things. But when you're making decisions about the blessings of God in your life, whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you? are you building your kingdom? You want to be retired at 35 and live a life of leisure? Well, nothing wrong with being retired at 35, if it's possible. But at the same time, it's not about this earthly kingdom. It's about his kingdom. And it is something of an anomaly in the kingdom of God that often those that give are those that don't have. And that tells us something about where our hearts are at. Bless the Lord. We're talking about an apostolic lifestyle. The pride of life. There's a lot of things that come under the heading of the pride of life. Idolatry, anything that's above God. Sorcery, selfish ambition, envy. Even anger can be born out of the pride of life. Wanting to be seen. Wanting to be liked. Wanting to be exalted. Wanting to get ahead of the next person. 
be more popular than the next person, wanting to have power, wanting to have control, wanting to have authority, wanting to have all these things is all a part of the pride of life. And if there's one thing that social media has demonstrated to us, there's a lot of things, but if there's one thing that social media has demonstrated, it's how much people are obsessed with themselves. We are obsessed with ourselves. You know, when I was a kid and you took photos, you had to get this stuff called film. Came in a canister. It's probably in a museum now. And when you wanted a photo, you actually had to pay to have the photo developed. So as a consequence, we never took selfies because they weren't worth paying for. Although my sister-in-law used to often take a lot of selfies on my wife's camera and then my father-in-law used to go nuts when he saw them because he paid for all the photos to be developed. But social media has proven how obsessed we are with ourselves. Photos of people doing ordinary things, wanting others to look at them. I mean, before social media, did you ever invite your friends over to come and look at what you were having for lunch? Would you please come to my house and look at my lunch? You're not going to have any, but I just want you to see it. I mean, really, great, you're having lunch. You're not going to die. We're thrilled for you. But things that people want others to acknowledge them by the most boring details of their lives. I had a friend from school when Facebook first came out. He was aware he observed this phenomenon. And so he spent the whole day posting things. Went outside, came back in, brushed my teeth, had lunch. And at the end of the day, he said, and all you stupid people have read all this boring stuff. But it, it reveals to us how obsessed we are with ourselves. That we take, I mean, look, if you want to take photos of everything, be my guest. If you want to put them on the internet for the whole world to see, be my guest. But it is a reflection of our desire to feel valued in an artificial world. I hate to break this to you. This may hurt some people's feelings, but if you have 1,200 Facebook friends, I would suggest that between two and three of them are probably your real friends. The others, you know, there are people who wish me happy birthday on Facebook that would never have a clue when my birthday was if Facebook didn't tell them. But they want me to think that they care about me. Sorry if I'm being a little cynical, but I'm a realist. We have become obsessed with other people seeing us. And look, there's a lot of positive use for social media. I'm not against social media. I'd be a hypocrite if I said I was, because I use it. But you will not see me post my lunch very often. If I do, it better be a pretty good meal, not a jam sandwich. Bless the Lord, I could get going. But You see, to go online and to tell the social media world about how you're having a bad day so that hundreds of your imaginary friends can take five or ten seconds to post about how much they're caring for you and go back to taking pictures of their lunch. This is the world that we live in. It's all about self. It's all about me. You know, the old hymn, there are some old things that are still good things. Brother Paul sang that old song this morning. There's an old hymn that says, You take it to the Lord in prayer. 
it doesn't say post it on the net and share. It says take it to the Lord in prayer. If you're having a bad day, I can guarantee you that Facebook will not cure your bad day. Neither will Twitter or Instagram or any of that other stuff. But if you will take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I have a situation. You know something? He can change it without anybody else knowing about it. Now, I have no problem with if you post and say, God intervened in something in my life today and gave me a miracle, praise the Lord. That's a testimony. There's nothing wrong with that. But people that get on there and, oh, I've had such a miserable week. My dog died. And every dog lover on the planet gets on there and it's like, oh, please. But it's a reflection of the me society that we live in. Me, 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 me. I want everybody to know how I'm doing. Bless the Lord. I'm going to wrap that up. Bless the Lord. We have to have boundaries. Some people say, well, you know, there are principles in the Word of the Lord. There are. But a principle without a practical application is a waste of time. Every principle the Word of God has must have a practical application. Otherwise, it's just a theory. When you take a principle from the Word of God, you say, because of this, I do this. Or because of this, my pastor teaches us not to do that. It's not necessarily a commandment, but it's a principle. For example, there is nothing on in the scripture about social media. But you need to recognize that your witness in social media is just as powerful as your witness in the natural. In fact, your witness on the internet sometimes has a far greater audience than your natural witness does. And so you need to take great care. And when the scripture talks about, you know, how the tongue being such a little member can kindle a great fire, you need to take that and say, yes, the keyboard can do the same thing. We have to have boundaries in our lives. The same kind of boundaries we would put in our conversations should be in our social interaction. You put things in place to protect yourself. It's not enough to say, well, the Bible says that we shouldn't be in fornication, and that's true. But what boundaries do you have in your life to prevent yourself from finding yourself in that situation? You put those things there to protect yourself. Just like the guardrails on that mountain highway. They don't want people to crash into them because they have to spend money to replace them. But they're put there to save somebody's life because there may be 10,000 cars come down that mountain before one hits that boundary. And if that life is preserved, it's worth it being there for the other 10,000 as well. Bless the Lord. We've got to have these things in our lives. I'm wrapping this up. We've spoken in the last few weeks or the last few lessons about apostolic doctrine, apostolic experience, and apostolic lifestyle. I need some people to help me do a demonstration here. Jonathan, come here, bro. You get the good one today. You get to be apostolic doctrine. This is the word of God. Tristan, come on. This young man, come up here. I'm not going to hurt you. It's all right. He represents apostolic experience. And Moses is cold. You ever hear he's got his hands under his legs? We'll get you up and warm you up, bro. This is apostolic lifestyle. Now, if you're going to claim to have an apostolic identity, you have to have all three of these. Let me explain why. Fortunately, they're all smaller than me, so I can make them disappear. If you lose apostolic doctrine, Sorry, bro. If you lose apostolic doctrine, then you have an experience which does not have a foundation. 
which is based upon how you feel and your own interpretation of the things that happen in your life, which will then produce a lifestyle that is also based upon how you feel and what happens on any given day. There's no consistency. It's just here and there, and the Bible talks about being tossed about. If you don't have a foundation, that's what these two will give you. But if you move across to here, sorry, Tristan, excuse my back, and you have doctrine, but no experience, all you've got is knowledge. You might be a Bible scholar, but if all that is is head knowledge and it never somehow becomes mingled with faith to become experience, all you've got is knowledge. And knowledge on its own, the Bible tells us, puffs up, makes us proud. So you've got to, and if, if you have doctrine without experience, then your lifestyle is going to be one of two things. It's either going to be very worldly and sinful, or it's going to be a list of rules and you're going to be a Pharisee because there's no experience. Now, I'm going to get myself confused. If you don't have an apostolic lifestyle, or in other words, if you have no separation in your life, there's no boundaries. You just think, well, the pastor's just a killjoy. He doesn't want anybody to have fun. He teaches that stuff because he's an old fuddy daddy and he's stuck in the last century, which is actually not that long ago. If you don't have boundaries or guidelines and principles and convictions and live an apostolic lifestyle, then the carnal things that you're allowing into your life, sinful practices, ungodly practices, ungodly influences, will damage your experience. They will take away from your experience. When your experience becomes damaged, it no longer lines up with your doctrine. And so something's got to give. If your experience is not the same, you'll change your doctrine to make yourself feel comfortable about what's happening with your experience. That's the world we live in right now. In so much of Christianity, they are saying that an that apostolic lifestyle is no longer necessary. And that is detracting from their experience, which is causing them to compromise their doctrine. I know too many people, thanks gentlemen, you can sit down. I know too many people that once held very strong convictions about living a separated, holy, apostolic life that compromised that. And with a little bit of time, their lifestyle changed. And a little bit longer, they didn't think that things were true anymore, or that things mattered anymore, or that there was only one way to be saved, or that God's Word was absolute. You have to have all three components to claim an apostolic identity. You must have a foundation of apostolic doctrine and truth. There is one God. His name is Jesus. You must be born again of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must live a holy life. And then you have to actually have that experience. If I can only tell you what it says, but I can't show you how it happened, then something's missing. And then when I've had that experience, because when I get to this middle one, and my faith is mixed with that apostolic doctrine, I will have the experience. I will have my sins washed away, and I will be filled with the Holy Ghost. And because of that, there should be something in me that says, I don't want to live the way I used to live. I want to take steps towards entering into an apostolic lifestyle. Two reasons. Number one, to protect my soul from going back to my sin, but also because I want to draw closer to my God. I want to have that father and son relationship with God that he wants to have with me. Every part of this is necessary. You take one out, the others will crumble. Now, I, I would probably suggest that the foundation is the most important. 
You can't build a house without a foundation. But if all you've got is a foundation, any of you men that promise your families you're going to build them a house and all you build them is a concrete slab, they're not going to want to live on that thing. You need a house as well. And so we build a foundation on a stone. It's not concrete. It's a cornerstone that's been there since before time. It's the revelation that there is one God and his name is Jesus. That, that is our foundation. And then we build a house on that foundation. And in that house there is new life. There is abundant life. There is godliness. There is righteousness. Instead of the works of the flesh, there's the fruit of the Spirit. And when we live that life, other people will see something that is different about us. We have to have all three if we're going to claim to have an apostolic identity. You know, if they take a guardrail down, it doesn't mean that the first person that comes down that road is going to die. It doesn't. I was on a trip. I've spoken to you about it before. In East Timor one time, we went up this mountain. They didn't even know what a guardrail was. But the Smokey's done that drive. It's a pretty hairy drive up there. There's no, there's no boundaries. And I obviously survived. I'm still here. But I won't tell you that I wasn't a little bit concerned about my well-being going up and down that mountain. Now, my well-being was not controlled by the guardrail. But the guardrail would have given me some peace of mind. Guardrails in your lives as Christians should help to give you peace of mind. Now, there will be times that we will be foolish and we'll step across that guardrail. And if the Lord is merciful, we won't suffer the consequences. But surely a guardrail is worth it if only one life is preserved. If it was you or your child, would you not be glad the guardrail was in place? You see, parents, we're under a lot of pressure in this society to compromise the things we stand for and the things we hold to. And now you may have had those guardrails for a long, long time, and if you move them, you may not change, but there's a generation that comes behind. There are young people that are following us, our children, other people's children, that if they do not have those guardrails, we will lose them. The casualty rate will be very high. That's why we have to hang on to this apostolic identity. That's why we have to love what it is that we believe, what we stand for, and how we live. The experience must be genuine. Because if all you've got is the guardrails and no experience, you just become a, a rule keeper, you become a legalist, you become a Pharisee. But when we understand that those things are born out of doctrine, experience, lifestyle, and we have that whole package, that's how God wants us to be. Let's stand together this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord today.